No, no, no. Unlimited slushy. Hello, and welcome back to Slushy Stop. At this point in the game, uh, fateful duels have been completed, wise words have been spoken, and so today, we are going to just share some more insights that we had into the Star Wars movies, and I'm joined once again by Jake and Alex. Hello, Hey-o. gentlemen. Sup? Well, it, AKA the losers. <laughs> well, spoilers, I mean, don't want to give anything away, because maybe some people are uh, wanting to put the bonus episode in there. You know, to kind of break things up. So I would also like to point out true. that we are only losers as far as these people are concerned. We have that is we, true. We have since the finale played a couple of other games, and now that is not necessarily the case. Yes, everyone is still on equal footing at this point. So, but we still have one official winner that is on record. So, just saying. Well, not to toot your own horn, but uh. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to say anything about how awesome I am for winning the trivia, but if you're going to bring it up, then hey. But yeah, so this this episode is going to be a little bit different. We're not talking about any one specific movie. We're just kind of covering some topics that really range across all the movies, the, the, the saga as a whole. Um, got some interesting things for you here. So one that I think I'm probably most excited about <laughs> is Alex's. Uh, so would you like to... You mean it? <laughs> would you like to share with us what's been on your mind regarding Star Wars? Oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> I noticed a long time ago as I was watching these movies and uh, when I got out into the working world, something that stuck out to me, uh, and I always thought it would be a good TED Talk, but... Uh, you know, shockingly, I've never been invited to the conference. So, Sadly. if you all will, yeah, if if you all will indulge me, I will share my uh, hypothesis with you. Yes, I'm not please. Sure do. Hypothesis is the right word, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, uh, let's let's work under the following premise: Darth Vader was the victim of corporate mismanagement which ultimately led to his personal downfall and the downfall of the Galactic Empire. I can back this up. Okay. Um, Please do. So let's go in our minds to episode four, A New Hope. Um, we're introduced to Darth Vader as he is literally, personally uh, pursuing the rebels and the stolen Death Star plans. Mm-hmm. So he's like, a he's boots on the ground. And uh, he's personally interrogating people we we see that he's very much kind of a man of action um he's not a bureaucrat and we know this because in the conference room on the death star vader literally doesn't even have a seat at the table Mm, um so he not only metaphorically doesn't have a seat at the table in terms of like you know, government business. He literally doesn't have a seat. He's kind of just this, uh, you know, we're led to believe this guy who acts on behalf of the emperor. Um, but Tarkin and then the governors and the council, they're all kind of there making these, you know, bureaucratic decisions 
uh, and all that good stuff. So he's not a member of the board. No. Definitely Va- not. Vader is an no, imperial not. bouncer, for lack of a better term. Yeah, he's kind of the emperor's <laughs> personal bouncer. It's the kind of the way it seems. And uh, again, he he's boots on the ground, uh, searching for the stolen plans and uh, literally taking people by the throat and choking them to get information. Yeah, and then when the rebels mount an attack on the Death Star, Vader personally crawls into a Tie Fighter, folds himself up into the cockpit, and uh, goes out himself. Uh, to to attack, you know the uh, Luke and the other X-wing fighters uh, making an attack run. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's not he's not front lines though. You know, no, he's, he's not, not front lines, but he's definitely not afraid to get his hands dirty. Um, yes, and we, we see that like he he treats Tarkin and um, the other governors kind of with a little bit of disdain. Well, at the end of A New Hope. The Death Star is destroyed, and with it, definitely Tarkin, presumably several other Imperial bureaucrats who were on board mm-hmm. the thing. Um, it was a huge to, blow to the Empire. Right. So you think, like, a lot of the ranks of leadership have been whittled down quite a bit. You know, like, uh, they lost a lot of key figures, you would think. To me, it's kind of like the equivalent of, like, blowing up the United States Capitol building. Um, you know, you're you're losing a lot of those a lot of those key decision makers. So, mm-hmm. Empire rolls around. It's been a few years. Um, and we suddenly see, not suddenly, but Vader's role seems to have shifted in Empire. He's gone from being kind of this guy who's on his own ship out there pursuing things to now he's a little more of a middleman. And when we first see him in Empire, he's on board the Star Destroyer. And he's giving orders to the fleet. He's talking to uh, Admiral... uh, What's his name? Admiral Ozzel. Yeah, he's talking to Admiral Ozzel. And he's giving orders to the fleet in pursuit. They're trying to find the rebel base, the hidden rebel base. So we see that from the beginning, his role has... He's a little less, like, boots on the ground, a little more... um, given orders from the bridge at this point. Then we uh, we have the, you know, they discovered them on Hoth. He's kind of orchestrating the invasion and all that uh, good stuff. And he does go down to the planet's surface, but only after all of the hard work has been done, contrary to A New Hope, where he's kind of the first guy through the gate. Now he's kind of hanging back, letting some of the, uh, kind of letting the cannon fodder do its job. After that, we see him wanting to pursue the Millennium Falcon uh, in his pursuit of Luke Skywalker. But the Emperor calls him off the chase and says, no, we need to talk. We need to have a conference. Mm. And so basically, the Emperor is taking Vader out of action in order to uh, to kind of do government business. He's saying, you know, it's basically like a it's a conference call. He's saying, "Hey, I need to know. I need to know what's going on. Who's doing what? What was the progress? Where are we on these projects?" And so Vader is like a little frustrated by this, seemingly, um, but he does it because you know he everybody answers to somebody. By Return of the Jedi, 
Vader is now totally a pencil pusher. Um, mm-hmm. I'm guessing you just don't grow bureaucrats on trees here in this uh, empire or in this galaxy. So rather than call up talent to fill the ranks of government, the emperor has just seemingly placed more and more responsibility on Vader. The problem is that's not who Vader is. Going back to his days as Anakin Skywalker, Anakin's a warrior. I mean, he's a Jedi. He's not a uh, he's not a senator. He's not a congressman. At the, uh, he's at not the even most, like a lobbyist. At the most, he's like special forces. Right. Like you you deploy him under the right circumstances to you know shut things down when necessary, but it's not the solution for everything. Right. By the time Return of the Jedi rolls around, we see that Vader has been basically totally benched. And now instead of replacing a lot of those Tarkins um, and those Tarkin-like figures, Vader has been saddled with more government responsibility. And he's failing. He's doing a terrible job at it. And we know that because the very first sequence in Return of the Jedi is Vader arriving on a half-finished Death Star basically demanding a progress report and being told that uh, the progress that he's wanting is impossible with the staff. And the guy says, I need more men. And Vader's, you know, clearly like, well, you can tell that to the emperor, sir. Like, so this project that Vader has been tasked with overseeing is behind over budget, presumably. Um, You can also argue too that, you know, the guy that's under him, like, doesn't have a lot of respect for vader at this point like no fear or anything he's questioning him saying you know we need this we need this but as soon as he brings the emperor into it's like oh well you know we'll double our efforts right and and the emperor comes to oversee the project himself which is to me the ultimate vote of no confidence like it's the ultimate sign that he's not happy with the way this project is going that he's entrusted to his you know top lieutenant and Vader is slipping a little bit. And, and we see that he's he's frustrated because he wants to be pursuing Luke Skywalker. He wants to be down, you know, personally chasing uh, Luke Skywalker and the Rebels. And the Emperor's frustrated because he's like, didn't I tell you? Like, that's not what I want you to do. I want you here. I want you overseeing this. He'll come to you. Just wait. Like, at one point, the Emperor even says, I thought I told you to remain in the command ship. And uh, he questions Vader's feelings on the matter of Luke. So Vader at this point, I think, totally overwhelmed uh, by the job of COO of the Galactic Empire. (laughs) And to the point that when the Emperor has Luke in the throne room, he says, kill your father, take his place at my side. Which is like the emperor basically saying, "Yeah, he like he's not really performing at the level. It's the <laughs> ultimate like it's the ultimate corporate atmosphere. Sorry, but like you're not meeting the metrics that I have set forth for you, Mister Vader. Um, so Luke, why don't you kill him and take his place? You're younger. You probably have good young, ideas. Young gun, up and rising newcomer, and just you know we'll we'll put our faith in him." Right, and so they're clearly, the Emperor believes they're about to wipe out the Rebel fleet. Um, so it's not like he needs a strong man at his side. He needs a bureaucrat. He needs someone to oversee the Empire. He needs a guy 
he can count on to kind of be his right hand in the matters of government. And Vader is totally useless at this. He's not say, good at it. And would you say some of that is arrogance by the Emperor as well, considering the whole time he's spouting how everything's going as I have foreseen it? Yeah, and but that's the thing. Like Palpatine, going back to our previous conversations, he's the ultimate government like bureaucrat he's the ultimate politician he's the ultimate manipulator like he's a guy whose skill set is getting things done as was tarkin you go back and look at you know a new hope not only was the death star like finished it i'm guessing it was finished like before schedule under budget and like the union guys never got paid and he was like you know what sorry about you it's better than having your family killed you know um, yeah, it definitely looked like Tarkin every, ran a tight ship there. Yeah, and everything on everything in A New Hope, like the Empire is running like clockwork. And so, you know, not to take anything away from the Rebel Alliance, and I know that's the whole storyline and, and, and all that good stuff, but I think what we gradually see over the course of the original trilogy is like some the Empire is getting less and less productive as those movies go on to the point... Even in Empire, um, when Vader says Admiral Ozzel came out of light speed too close to the system. So now instead of just doing an aerial bombardment, they have to send ground troops down to the planet's surface. So now like millions of dollars worth of Imperial resources are tied up in a land invasion on Hoth. And like I'm guessing that resources are not unlimited, that you know, that this stuff does cost money. And Vader seems to botch project after project after project um he doesn't catch luke at the end of empire he doesn't catch him he fails Mm -hmm. to secure the prize all he gets out of it is like a frozen han solo that they sell off to job of the hut um (laughs) so it's like the the more he's asked to do the worse he gets at everything because he's He's taking he's taken off of the stuff that he does really well, which is be a um, junkyard dog, basically. Mm-hmm. Like when I think of Vader, I think of a guy who goes himself and gets things done. And the more we see him pulled away from that, the more we see him struggle to find success, and the Empire suffers because of it. So I'm going to jump in here now. Um, I think you made a good point in pointing out that, like you said, around the time of A New Hope, it appears as though the Empire works like clockwork. And, you know, Tarkin is very much a bureaucrat politician. You know, he knows how to get things done. He's on top of it. He's very well organized. Um, If you've read the Tarkin book, which is canon, I think it's James Luceno maybe that wrote it, whatever. But um, I haven't finished it, but you do what the the bit that I have read, like you do get in his head and you see like he's a very orderly guy. So it's yeah. very easy to see that like this dude is like you do this now and then this and then this. And yeah, he's very much like management based As, and which is interesting because it works to his favor both in the political side because he is a governor we can't forget that and then he's also you know a high-ranking military official and so right. you know that he, he those management skills that he has um work to his favor in both professions 
and I'm going to dive in a little bit into um, some material that everyone may not be familiar with, but in the current ongoing Darth Vader comic book, um, there's the storyline. Uh, I don't remember the exact premise of the whole thing, but basically at some point, Vader um, does Tarkin his huge favor, you know, saves him and whatever. And um, the, the at the end of it, the whole thing is, all right, well, you know, Tarkin, or Vader says to Tarkin, you know, now you owe me a favor or whatever. And like the next issue, I believe, after that storyline is a one shot. And it turns out the the favor that Vader asks of Tarkin is he wants Tarkin to put together a team, not necessarily of Imperial forces, but a team of just the best, you know, bounty hunters, mercenaries, assassins, whoever he wants to land on a planet in isolation with just just Tarkin and his team and Vader, and he wants them to hunt him. That is all that he wants. And mm. the whole storyline is him just picking each one of these people off one by one by one. And he very nearly kills Tarkin in the end spoilers um really great issue i would recommend it you don't need to read any of the previous stuff really to to understand what's going on but it's really cool and you know you see very much throughout the story that while vader is killing off all these other people tarkin is still one step ahead so tarkin could very easily kill vader and he he almost does it's solely vader's rage and his you know warrior spirit for lack of a better term that puts him out on top in the very end and you know that right there is a very clear um indicator of what you're saying you know vader is not a bureaucrat he does not care about this political nonsense and i think that also uh is shown very much in that iconic quote from a new hope you know don't be too proud of this uh technological terror you've constructed uh you know blah 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 insignificant to the power of the force like he's very much dedicated like to his his combat his you know sorcerer's ways and whatever and he could not care less about the politics of any of this so yeah palpatine putting him in control of anything really doesn't make any sense at all because, like you know, like you said, that's that's not what he does. That's not what he knows. That's not what his skill set is. Not his ball game at all. He just wants to kill people and kill things and destroy stuff. He, he's like a angsty seven year old kid that you know, like that bad kid from uh, from Toy Story, Sid or whatever his name is. That you know, he gets the toys right. and immediately straps them to fireworks. That's Darth Vader. Essentially, it's like. <laughs> You, you give him something, and it's how quickly can I destroy this? And it, it's like, because that's the Jedi. Like, Jedi are not, going back to something that we talked about, I was listening to our Attack of the Clones um, episode, and uh, because that's what I do for fun. <laughs> I listen to our, to our own stuff. No, but I was listening to that, and we were talking about the fact that, the, like, who put the Jedi in charge of anything? Because it's like at Jedi University, you're not learning. You're not walking out of there with a business degree. You know, you're not walking out of there with a management degree. You're walking out of there with like a liberal arts education with a focus in lightsaber combat and like defensive strategy. You know what I'm saying? So it's really, it's really, it, it go. It, that's the root of it. Like 
Anakin Skywalker wasn't taught anything about government. In fact, the only government he's ever seen up close and personal is completely dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. It's Palpatine slowly, like man, over years and years and years, manipulating um, the Senate and the Republic to give him all control and power. Or it's Padme making a series of terrible decisions and getting lost in kind of the quagmire of democracy. So, of course, Vader is not good at government because he that's not his world. That's not his background. And... Um, yeah, and there's so many and there's so many great examples, you know, in the original trilogy. Like another one that stands out to me is in Empire. Uh, you know, talking about bounty hunters and everything. You know, you have that point in Empire where he's been hitting all these roadblocks. He he's not getting anywhere. So what does he do? He hires independent contractors to come in. <laughs> he does. Um, and as soon as he does that, though, he starts finding success by delegating. Like, that's what he needed to do all along. But then, if, and so it makes me wonder, like, had he had he continued to delegate throughout the rest of the movie, you know, and let maybe uh, Boba Fett capture Luke, then maybe Luke would have been captured. Yeah. But instead, he went back to the front lines again to try to do it himself and ended up failing. So it was While just... While trying to balance, like, his other responsibility. I think that's key. Like, if that had been his sole job, if, like, he could have focused... Con- entirely on that but instead like we see him he's balancing several different things throughout empire and doing none of them really well Mm -hmm. and so that's and and one thing that just crossed my mind as you were saying all of that um one brilliant thing that i think george lucas did is sort of sowing the seeds of that in the prequels you know we've we've said our our pieces about the prequels um you know, we've we spent an entire episode tearing down Attack of the Clones and what have you. Um, but in that episode, or in yeah, that episode in that movie, um, Anakin has the line to Padme about you know people should be made to uh, whatever it is, you know, agree on things or whatever whatever the debate is. And right, he says basically that a dictator could do a better job. At government, at governing than the republic. Yeah, like, well, yeah. He he describes a democracy, and Padme says, "Well, you know, that's what we do." Just the problem is people don't always agree, and he says, "Well, they should be made to." Right yeah. there, he's showing signs of like he does not understand how any of these things work. He's not interested in yep. the way these things work. He just wants to say, "Here we are. Here's where we need to be. Let's just get there." There's there's no getting there it's just one extreme to the other yeah in like modern society i think it would be fair to say he's i wouldn't say he's like one of the one of the like rockefellers or carnegies or vanderbilts because those guys knew business and they were really good at it but he would be an example of like someone who's really good at like hunting down and killing people (laughs) and somehow like lands himself. Like, could you imagine if like Douglas MacArthur had been elected president of the United States? Like, here's a guy who's very good at, at like, you know, orchestrating a war, 
but not necessarily a guy that you want in the White House. Yeah. Because he has a very distinct skill set that maybe doesn't lend itself to democracy. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that's a good point that Anakin from the beginning is not a team player. And uh, he's always kind of a go-it-alone kind of guy. Um, and he, even to the point that he and Obi-Wan, like, when they're protecting Padme, like, Anakin does it his way. Um, he doesn't listen to Obi-Wan. He doesn't want to play as a team. He wants to do it himself. And, you know, he carries that throughout his whole life. And I think it's Vader is arguably the reason the Galactic Empire collapses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely point. makes you wonder if they had had... If they had had the right person in that role that could balance things and delegate properly, would things have, you know, gone much differently? So this this very loosely ties into a conversation that we've touched on a little bit, but Dooku. Did Palpatine potentially underestimate Dooku? Because imagine what the Empire would have looked like had Dooku not died in Revenge of the Sith and he'd remained Palpatine's apprentice. Obviously, he was old as dirt, so unless the dark side gave him some, you know, Dumbledore, I'm going to live forever kind of powers, um, then, you know, he would probably wouldn't have survived that long, that much longer. But, you know, you see him in Attack of the Clones. He's the one on the ground spending more time amongst the separatist leaders than, you know, on the battlefield. You know, he can fight when need be. But he's also very politically minded. So what would a, you know, post-Clone Wars empire with Count Dooku at second in command look like? That could be really interesting. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I absolutely think so. I, I think Dooku would have been a formidable bureaucrat. I mean, it would have been really fun also to watch like him and Tarkin jockeying for power and position because Dooku I think is a would have been a worthy adversary like a guy who's politically inclined and also comes from a powerful family Mm -hmm. who would have a lot of connections where like Vader is a guy literally from you know the porta potty of the galaxy who knows nobody who has no connections but like that's a great point but it's but it's also kind of comes back to Palpatine and his arrogance you know it's it's He says to Grievous, you know, soon I'll have a new apprentice, one far younger and more powerful. So he's not really concerned with the the bureaucratic part. He thinks he's got a handle on that entirely and can do it himself and sort of underestimates his own abilities a little bit, maybe. You know, he's he's very much just looking for this strong warrior of of Vader and doesn't seem to think that he needs any assistance in the political field. Mm-hmm. Well, and it calls into question also, and I don't want to linger on this too long because we, we have two other topics to get to, but like what is Palpatine doing by the time Return of the Jedi rolls around? Just, just sitting because, in chairs and looking out windows, dude. <laughs> yeah, clearly, well, clearly he had, you know, that long con that he was doing to get to Emperor but then once he got there, he didn't know what to do with himself at that point. He yeah. just 
He was still trying to figure it out. I mean, I guess the Rebel Alliance came along, so that gave him a new problem to address, but still. Yeah, he's just sitting in chairs, looking out windows, talking to those two gothy dudes with their weird hats and scarves that you see in Return of the Jedi that never say anything, just stand there and look like... Are those guys... Are they Nemodians? I don't think they're Nemodians. I mean, maybe, but I don't... They look more humanoid. They have noses and stuff. I think they're just... um, Do you think Palpatine's, like, attending a lot of Imperial galas? Like, hmm, he, he tonight's guest. He, ma- he makes you know surprise, how the president has he makes to, surprise cameos, right? Yeah, you know the president of the United States has to go to all these balls and galas and things. Do you think that's Palpatine? Like he wears <laughs> the same. It's like a it's like a luxury brand black robe, and he's like, you know, uh, very good to see you. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's like shaking no, hands did, and kissing no, babies. At, 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 People at are like, events like this, he's dressing like Dumbledore. Putting on these right. super decorative, <laughs> elegant robes instead. <laughs> Do you think he has like a few a few drinks and starts doing like lightning tricks <laughs> at, with his hands at oh parties? Entertain the children. What do you think his pajamas uh. look like? Come here, children. <laughs> and he like lights fires from across the room with okay. his uh, with his finger lightning bolts. We, I mean, we, seriously, we, what's he we doing? We desperately need what's more Palpatine. Why is he unloading all these responsibilities? Kathleen Kennedy, if you are listening, we need a Palpatine movie stat. Do you think he? Do you think he naps a lot by that age? Or like, what do his house slippers look like? Because all old people have like a good, dependable <laughs> pair of house slippers. What do they look like? I bet they're like those. You remember? Um, was it Pope Benedict who famously had Louis Vuitton? No, sorry, or Louboutin, or they like he had Louboutin velvet slippers. I bet Palpatine has the equivalent of like Louboutin velvet slippers with the imperial insignia (laughs) on top, and I bet he has like them in every color. He has a white pair with the black insignia, a black pair with a white insignia, made made from made from Toydarian skin. (laughs) (laughs) These are my favorites. Good. Okay, so we we've definitely <laughs> gone off course a little bit here, but what, it just kind of goes to show you though they, they've got bantha fur question. on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Very rare. <laughs> what do you think Vader's salary was by the time of Return of the Jedi? Because it makes me wonder: was there a little resentment? Like he's out here literally doing everything, and the Emperor is like doing nothing. What is Vader making at this point in his life? Is it like? Is he being very well compensated, or is he like, here I am doing everything, like making pennies on the dollar? I think he gets paid in life. Like, if if he doesn't do his job, the emperor's like, well, I'll just take that fancy little suit you got there and take you back to Mustafar and lay you down on the banks, lay you down on the banks of this volcano and see how you fare on your own. Maybe I'd give you the Padme treatment. Drop drop you somewhere in the Dune Sea and uh, let you crawl your way out of that one, scabby. That is kind of the ultimate, like, hang over your head <laughs> thing. Like, nice suit you have there. It'd be a shame if something <laughs> happened to it. <laughs> Seeing he shoots lightning, you know. Okay, Nate is shaking his head in disgust, so we can move on. Yes, we've fallen so far off off track here, but that just kind of goes to show you, though. I mean, it, it's a great, great subject. That's why I was so excited to get on it, but 
alas, we do have now other you're... things to move on to. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh... Okay, Dad. <laughs> Don't talk back to me. Um... So... You think both? So gonna, you think Bothans made Palpatine slippers by hand? Many, I bet ma- many of them died trying. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of manufacturing, uh, this is the best segue I can come up with at the moment. But Jake, you have a subject for us. So yeah, I have a topic. Um, sticking with this this lightheartedness, I just want to talk about toys and collectibles. You know, I grew up. I was born in 1994. I was five years old when Phantom Menace came out. And if you are a collector these days, you know that virtually everything with the Phantom Menace, uh, you know name slapped on it or anything like that is virtually worthless there are very there's very little uh phantom menace related merchandise that is worth anything because it was so mass produced that to say it was everywhere like the my the grocery store that my grandmother worked in had their frozen the tops the tops of their frozen section had those huge cardboard standee things of each character lying down it in little nowhere Athens Alabama like it was all over the place so yeah I remember getting like in my stocking one year a one of those uh, lollipop holder things that would rotate it for you and it was like freaking Jar Jar Binks or something mm-hmm. like that. Just just some of the most random things yeah, in the world. Everything. You used to go to get a cavity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> S- Star Wars at that time was very much like the band Kiss. Like, if a product was produced, yeah. it was made with a Star Wars logo on it. Much. I remember mm-hmm. like Lay's potato chips. Yeah, and were were, were like Phantom Menace. Brand. Yeah, and they they made. Pepsi. Yeah, Nate and I spent one day. Uh, during lunch or something looking at the the pepsi and mountain dew cans and there were literally like 36 and it was like collect them all and you'll have kidney stones halfway through <laughs> but yeah i mean it was insane it was everywhere and a lot of that yeah. is due to you know i think a lot of it is they were thinking that this that phantom menace would be the second a new hope you know there's the you know the story everyone knows yeah. when a new hope came out everyone thought it would flop so the toys weren't ready so they had to rush something and then kenner had the little cardboard things that you could buy and mail them off and then they send you your figures and now those figures are worth a ton because even back then they couldn't pro- they couldn't produce enough to match the demand so then you get to episode one and they overproduce trying to make sure that doesn't happen again and it ended up you know not necessarily working to their advantage but well and and it wasn't just that too it was also the fact that you know for a while there you had kind of a dry spell you know such a long period of time between the end of return and the beginning of episode one like Mm -hmm. there was only so much star wars merchandise that they could produce this was like the first time in a while they had you know new things that they could release new characters and locations and everything so they were going to make sure that they milked it for everything that they could yeah not to mention for the first time in franchise history like video games like consumer 
like at home video games, yeah. um, Star Wars video games that also just you know fed right into the the fervor. Yeah. So you know, for me, you know, obviously I remember seeing the original trilogy. You know, as I've said before, some of my earliest memories watching a new, uh, Empire Strikes Back in my my uncle's bedroom. Um, but a big part of my memory as a child is, you know, my I had a favorite Star Wars t-shirt with Darth Maul on it that my mom would never let me wear to school because she thought she was afraid it would scare the other kids because Darth Maul's a pretty rough looking dude. She had no problem with the shirt. She just didn't want yeah. the other kids to be afraid of me or whatever. So I would come home from school like every day and change into that shirt because I loved it so much. Um, and I had tons and tons and tons of Star Wars toys. And, you know, even now, I, I spent a, a lot of time last year when the 40th anniversary A New Hope figures were coming out, just scouring every store that I could, you know, all over the internet looking for these figures um, because I just happened to get into collecting and stuff. And so I think merchandise really, I mean, it, you can't really argue that it, it plays a massive role in the success of Star Wars because a lot of people, you know, little kids are going to see those toys and, you know, those cereal boxes and whatever else in the grocery store long before they'll ever see the movies. Oh, yeah. So, you know, they've, they've played a huge part in my life. I mean, I had, I can't tell you how many of those lightsabers that, which, you know, now they're a lot cooler. You, now you flip the switch and the light goes up them as, you know, like the lightsabers igniting. But when we were kids, it was just, you know, you turn them on, they make mm -hmm. the noise. I think starting with episode two, they lit up. But I remember my Darth Maul one and Qui-Gon ones didn't light up. They turned on. Oh, and, man. You know, they came out of the little thing and the blade didn't go in all the way. The, 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 yep. the, the bottom section was still out. But I had tons of those. And, and sometimes you would accidentally pull the plastic too far out and you'd have to like... It would, the tip would come off. You had to like slide yeah. it back because they're like nesting or whatever. Yeah. And mm. so, so my, my big point to all of this is for, I think a lot of people, particularly our generation, um, who sort of came up in that period where there is all this merchandise suddenly being pushed out for the first time in years. Um, and we had, you know, parents or relatives who were excited to buy us this merchandise because it was stuff that you know maybe they had as a kid or knew about as a kid and then it had disappeared for so long um and so i know at least in my case i feel like having those toys and that sort of thing sort of amplified my love for the franchise even more because you know episode one came out in 99 episode two in 2002 episode three in 2005 that's three years in between that it's like well what am i gonna do being a little kid it was like i'd go see the movie and then i would go home after school on the weekends and put on my jedi costume grab a lightsaber and run around my house and make up my own stories in my head yep so absolutely so yeah i mean that's and i think that's that's the case for a lot of people and that's why you have so many people that are Star Wars collectors because they had the same experience when they were kids. You know, the the merchandise sort of transcends just the, the movie franchise, and I think it plays a big part in why, for a lot of people, these are more than just movies. 
Yeah, because it's 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 because it's really easy, especially even in in the times we live now with the new movies and gosh, how much branding there is. I mean, you have freaking like Gillette razors with stormtroopers on them and pop tarts that look like Star Wars characters, and I mean, you name it. And it's got like you go to Walmart and everything is branded Star Wars, and and so it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that you know. I know thinking back to like when I was a child and for me it started with, with when the original series came out the special edition in theaters and like right away I remember right after it came out we went to Taco Bell and they had those little figurines and everything that they were selling and I think the first one I got was it was like an R2-D2 that when you opened it up it had Princess Leia inside of it. And there's just something about once you have an experience with something like that, you want something tangible to go along with it. Because, you know, mm -hmm. a movie, it leaves these memories, these feelings and things like that. But but there's not something you can actually physically hold on to. And so that's part of why I think toys and other collectibles like that matter so much because they give you that tangible connection to this thing and so, you know, it was shortly after that, yeah, I soon got a uh, Darth Vader figurine and a Luke Skywalker. And I mean, those were my go-to. Like, I mean, I, I like those things so much that I, I'm by no means an artist when it comes to drawing or painting or anything like that. But dang it, I tried my best to, you know, try to draw those suckers as best as I could. I bet they look like crap, but still, I tried. That's awesome. So, I mean, it's just... It's just, like I said, it's just really easy to lose sight of that in this day and age where we're just so bombarded by the Star Wars brand. Yeah. Yeah, and like I told you guys early on, I mean, arguably what turned me on to the movies in the first place was a toy that I got in a Taco Bell mill when I was like seven years old. And that's when I was first, like, it was magic. I was like, what is this? It was a Cloud City, like, magnet toy that you know it was like a fast food kids meal item mm -hmm. but it's it was cheap as so, they come yeah i mean it was as cheap as cheap gets but it was so cool to me and i was like what is this and like i remember um i think they even had boxes i think at that time at taco bell like a kids meal would come in a box and the box was like had scenes from you know empire or return on it and i remember looking at it and just being like what is this and it was a cheap, I'll have to Google it and see if I can find it, but it was a cheap, like, Cloud City magnet toy that turned me on to, a, you know, a lifetime of fandom uh, for this movie franchise. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like, like Nate said, you see these movies and you need something, especially as a kid, like, you see them and it just takes over your imagination and so you need something tangible to to you know sort of hold on to that i guess and i think yeah. you know obviously at 24 years old i'm not coming home in the afternoons and putting on a jedi costume and running <laughs> around my apartment but i'd at, hope not but as i sit here right now you know it's it's december almost december so we have our christmas tree up the tree that's the, the star at the top of my christmas tree my tree topper is the death star there are there's another Death Star on it. I've got two or three Yodas, you know, Tie Fighter, X Wing, the Millennium Falcon. I mean, 
even my Christmas tree is covered in Star Wars stuff. We've got Star Wars stockings uh, lining our entertainment center. I've got a little Yoda, and don't hate me, Alex, but there's a little stuffed Ewok on the other side of the entertainment center. Like, I surround myself with it all the time, and... Your poor wife. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, we're not married yet. And number two, she puts up with it surprisingly well. She really hates action figures just because I have so many of them. And I really don't have that many. I'm not one of these guys that has an entire room covered in it. Partially because I don't have an entire room to cover it and I don't have the money. But someday. (laughs) But, like, I love the stuff. You gotta sell more death sticks. It it serves no purpose, really. You know, like, I buy these action figures and they just sit on the shelf. And, you know, it seems sort of gluttonous to just blow money on these things that are just going to sit there and don't serve a purpose. But for me, they... They provide comfort, and you know it's sort of. Well, it's a connection. It's a connection to childhood, and it's a connection to something. It's to me like there's something about remembering a time when I just <clears throat> there was this thing that was so much bigger, and it was like it was imaginative and creative. And there's something about looking at this stuff and remembering like you don't want to lose that part of yourself that gets lost in your imagination and that allows your creativity to run wild because all of that is still very good for us as adults. And I think we're really bad about losing that as we get older and we get jobs, you know, where like our thoughts turn to mortgages and car payments and like eating and doing a side project and seeing our family and then going to work. And it's like, I look at my little Yoda piggy bank and it's like, I'm reminded of it kind of removes me from that stuff. So I don't think it's, I wouldn't say it's worthless. It may not have a monetary value. Um, Oh, oh, a lot of it has a very high monetary value. In fact, (laughs) well, yeah, true. (laughs) Um, But it, it's uh, like Nate said, it, it's a, you know, it's a tactile connection to childhood in a way. Well, you know, you can hold it and pick it up and feel it. And it's like the feel of a little action figure in your hand doesn't change. Exactly. And I think for me, you know, it's, it's equal parts that, you know, one of my favorite things to say to people is like, never lose your youth, dude. Like in my mind, like if, if you grow, if you fully let yourself grow up, then you're that to, in my mind, that's just the epitome of misery. Like if if you yeah. lose a hundred percent of your youth, like you're done. Just if if that ever happens to me, just throw me off a bridge. I'm over it. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean it's both a tie to my youth, but it's also I think because I the the these movies mean so much to me, and I still sort of look at them through very childlike eyes that a big part of me still wants that immersion that I got from as a child, you know, it was like I said, put on the the Jedi costume that my mom had her friend like specially make for me and, uh, you know, grab a lightsaber or a little toy blaster and run around my house. And in my mind, I was completely immersed in that universe. I don't do that anymore, but by surrounding myself with, you know, this merchandise and, you know, just, staying up to date on all the star wars content i sort of hold on to that immersion and it's 
you know, for and like Hannah, her argument is always, you know, it just sits on the shelf. It's just taking up space. And it's like, yeah, but it's just a sort of a comfort thing for me. It keeps me grounded in a way and, you know, keeps me going. And I'll say, like, one of the things that, you know, someday I I hope to, you know, maybe have a kid. And one of the things that's really exciting to me about having a it's kid showing them Star is Wars the first time. Star Wars toys, man. Like, there are so many cool, like, Star Wars Legos really hadn't taken off uh, back when I was a kid. So, like, they're really, that stuff really wasn't out there. But now, you know, it, it brings me so much joy, like, at Christmas to see my younger you know, relatives, little cousins or whatever, whoever getting like Star Wars toys mm-hmm. at Christmas and to watch them light up. But but and, isn't uh, there also a little bit of envy because the toys now oh, seem so much, which I know, you know, like my, my uncle seeing me open stuff as a kid, I'm sure he was like, man, I wish I'd had that when I was a kid. Now, like yeah. I remember whatever last year, two years ago when Hasbro or whomever it was put out that battery powered, uh, land speeder you know luke's land speeder from a new hope and yeah you know i remember as a kid like i had a battery powered dump truck or something and like yeah that was cool but do you know what i would have done <laughs> to have luke's land speeder that i could physically get in and drive around well this is the monday we are recording this on the monday after thanksgiving not to break the fourth wall but on black friday my wife and i went and did a little shopping and we were at this uh, store we were at one of those stores that like I, I don't exactly know how it works but like they take brand new stuff that's maybe uh, like it doesn't sell at a big department store or whatever and somehow it winds up at one of these stores yeah. um, and it had like these really cool like remote control slash Roomba type R2D2 like and you like just put it on the floor and it reacts to your movement yep. and proximity and I was like oh I want that um what well, I don't know what I would do with it and the dog would hate it um but yeah I mean it's uh it's cool man it, it connects us to you know it connects us to these movies for sure so last thing for this and it's is loosely related but you were talking about having children someday you know all three of us do want children someday what age do you think you guys will show your kids star wars because i've stressed about this a lot because i know i saw them when i was like three or four and they you know i latched onto them but i'm worried like i don't want to show him show them to my kids too early and them not get it and then by the time they get older they're so desensitized that they, they just don't care but then i also don't want to show it to them when they're too old so then it's like, oh, why are you showing me this stupid old movie? I don't care. Like, it is I, very important to me I, that my kid sees it and gets it. If you don't like it, then that's a whole other problem that we're going to have to address when the time comes. But you have to at least understand. I think for me, I'm going to patiently wait for the kid to come to me someday and say, what is Star Wars? <laughs> And I'm going to be like, I've been waiting for this for a long time. You're going to be like Yoda and Dagobah. Yeah. yeah. Waiting for the chosen one. Much to learn oh, you and, still have. And like, 
then it's going to be a great day because I'm going to say, oh, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> Let me show you this world I've been living in. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to change gears here one more time because I have a topic as well for us to cover. Uh, going to kind of talk a little bit about maybe a little more behind the scenes of the movies because which you know appeals to me being a i hate to call myself a filmmaker since i've never really made a film but uh video producer so kind of close cousins whatever um so i'm titling this a tale of two producers because to me you know everybody talks about how you know there's such a, a big difference between the original trilogy and the prequels and like what went wrong and yada 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 so on and so forth and to me it really kind of comes down to the producers involved in those separate trilogies um so for those of you who don't know um here recently in the past few months uh gary kurtz passed away and he was the producer with george lucas on a few different movies, actually. Uh, they they started together with American Graffiti. Uh, they were actually commissioned by Fox to produce one quote-unquote regular movie and then one sci-fi movie. So they made American Graffiti together and then went on to produce Star Wars. Um, but I guess kind of as an aside, for those of you who, who may not know, a producer, their role is not really defined it kind of depends on the person because a producer is really the middleman between the director who is purely the creative driving force of a movie and the executives, you know, the guys that fund the movie and everything. So he works somewhere in the middle. Some of them are a little more creative driven and help out the director in a lot of ways on that side while others, you know, deal more with the executives and management and all that kind of crap. So, um, so I say all that to set up that, you know, I guess to kind of tell the story a little bit, as, as, I was, as I was saying with Gary Kurtz and George Lucas, they worked on A New Hope. So obviously, you know, great movie there. Uh, and then they also continued to work together on Empire Strikes Back. Another, another great installment. But, um... But it's interesting how the relationship worked because Gary Kurtz was definitely more of the hands-on creative type because even in the making of Star Wars uh, Empire Strikes Back, if you watch documentaries and other behind-the-scenes things like that, he was very hands-on. Like He was literally like an assistant director. He would go out there and shoot some of the you know, uh, B, B scenes and things like that himself to try to help out especially considering you know they were shooting off in other countries and george lucas stayed behind in california to work on indiana jones or some other stuff like that um wait hold on he i didn't know that while a new hope was being made he was working on indiana jones i think well not not indiana jones per i don't know if it was necessarily the movies or if it was the but he was working on something else but yeah he was like he was he was juggling multiple projects at once. He wasn't fully devoted to, um, 
to yet Empire at that time. That's why, you know, if you check the credits, George Lucas didn't direct Empire. Oh, yeah, Irvin Kirshner did. Yeah, Irvin Kirshner did. Um, huh. And so, so he was very far removed from Empire Strikes Back, and yet a lot of people would say that it was maybe one of the the best movies of the entire saga. So interesting. Uh, oh, George, George can't take a hint. <laughs> interesting relationship there. Um, but it was actually after it was during Empire that there was a split between Gary Kurtz and George Lucas where they decided to go separate ways. You know, they, they were, they talked about different ideas for, uh, return of the Jedi. They kind of had some creative differences over it. You know, Gary didn't believe that we needed to go back and do the death star again. George, I agree. George wanted to do it, but, but it wasn't just that. It was also the fact that at that time, you know, after the success of the first two movies and the toys and, you know, going back to our previous conversation, all of the money that came in from that, basically George Lucas started to get a little, a little greedy, so to say, at least that's my interpretation of it. And so he was more focused on making a movie that would sell toys versus a movie just, you know, telling the best story possible. Out there trying to please the Jake Freemans of the world with all these toys. Gosh. I, I will say one one of my favorite pieces of Star Wars merchandise I own. One of my prized possessions is my uh, Luke Skywalker: Return of the Jedi Force FX lightsaber made by uh, da, 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 the company that went out of business, whose name I'm blanking on at the moment. Uh, I'll think of it. But yeah, so so they were so they they split up, and you know even Mark Hamill said that you know it was it was a big moment. That it was like, you know, mommy and daddy splitting like a divorce because, I mean, that's how close Gary Kurtz and George Lucas were through this whole process. And, I mean, if you look into it, it's very interesting because it sounds like. Sorry about the, sorry, (laughs) borking. It was Master Replicas. That was the name of the brand. There we go, Master Replicas. But, yeah, like, from what I can tell, basically George Lucas is this crazy has has, just has this you know insane creativity about him like this wild creativity that when left on its own like it just runs amok that he needs someone there to wrangle him in to you know you know prune where necessary you know cut things out uh you know fertilize where necessary those sorts of things and that's what gary kurtz was is he was the yin to george's yang and as a result we got you know, some of the best movies in the entire saga out of it. Oh yeah. So, so his departure from the saga, you know, was, was a big deal. I mean, yes, yes. Return of the Jedi was, was still a, a good movie by comparison and everything. However, you can start to see some of the crack show there. I mean, uh, whether it be the Ewoks or, or what have you, uh, insert complaint here. But it, it definitely didn't have the same. It, it just didn't have this quite the same resonance as the the other movies did necessarily. And what resonance it did had was probably just leftover ideas from George and Gary's conversations. So, so then you fast forward, you know, to when the prequels were made. So Gary Kurtz still out of the picture, and that's where you have good old Rick McCallum come into the picture, who. 
for all intents and purposes, uh. <laughs> Rick Berman, as Red Lane Media would say, um, who for all intents and purposes, again, if you look at like the behind the scenes stuff, he is definitely not on the creative side of being a producer. He is much more of a, I would hate to say greasy car salesman, but he's definitely more on the business side of things. Like he's all about being just a yes man. Like he is there to... Like, instead of challenging George and in his decisions, he's just there to say yes, to just be a yes man and remove all barriers for George's creative vision as opposed to, you know, uh, creating a dialogue or anything like that. And I feel like, as a result, that's why the prequels are what they are. I mean, as we said many times in those prequels, like we can see the greatness that lies underneath but it just it just grew out of control like there you didn't have the right person there to 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 say no at the right times and to prune things back that you know it was just yeah george do whatever you want and we'll make it happen so can you nate and jake you guys are film guys i mean you you do film and video for a living can you explain a little bit for the people like me who are not from that world why does that matter i mean when the first time you ever brought that up to me um it was really interesting because like i just don't really kind of understand how that business works and like what is the role of a director the role of a producer like how do those things affect the final outcome? Obviously, you're right that it, A New Hope and Empire, I think most Star Wars fans would say are the pinnacle of the series. So can can you guys kind of explain that a little bit <coughs> for me if no one else? Yeah, a lot of times you say you, you you talk about vision when it comes to a director. Yes. That he's the one that has the it's it's all about his vision, how he how he foresees it. He's the one that really sets kind of the tone of how the film is going to be. Um, and so, and that determines, you know, what kind of shot selection that you have, uh, the pace and the editing, um, you know, what types of music is used. I mean, just yeah. any of those creative decisions are really funneled through the director in order to execute on his vision of what that final product is going to look like. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> depending on the producer or sometimes even the project, uh, the producer sort of does does that, but then is also the one that is, or one of the ones, because usually tip, typically movies will have multiple producers, multiple executive producers and so forth. <clears throat> and they're, sort, they're the ones that are sort of the middle ground between this is the vision and this is what we can afford. More or less. And so, hmm. you know, you've got... Yeah, they very much toe the line between the practical and the creative aspect of things. You know, they're, they're, they're more in the back office a lot of times, basically trying to set the director up for success yes. to achieve his vision. Because, you know, the director isn't the one, you know, booking equipment or actors or anything like that. I mean, he'll be there for casting calls to select who he wants, but... The producer is the one actually handling those more menial tasks in the background that, you know, aren't that don't require any creativity. It's more logistics and things like that at that point. Yeah. Sure. Now, all of that said, 
you know, Nate mentioned Rick McCollum and you get to the prequels and like we've said, like we said through all three of those of those episodes, Lucas was trying to do too many things at once. So you look at episode one, as we said, you either make a fun movie or you make a smart movie. You don't try to meld the two together without someone like a Gary Kurtz. You know, Empire is a very fun movie, and it's also a pretty smart one as well. You know, you save the Mm -hmm. big reveal for the end, and, you know, the whole the whole plot is not overly simplistic or anything. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of details, a lot of small moving parts in that. And so, you know, like, like you guys said, Rick McCollum's very much a yes man. So he didn't rein Lucas in. It was just, you know, George Lucas and all of his genius just flooding out onto the page. And he said himself, he's never been a good writer. He's not a good writer, never has been. I think when he says that, he's probably referring primarily to dialogue. But just in general, you know, he he should have been a little bit more focused and mm-hmm. probably would have been had he had someone like a Gary Kurtz to rein him in a bit. So you might say <clears throat> that George Lucas suffers from this very same problem that Darth Vader suffers from over the course of the original trilogy. (laughs) One might say... To bring it full circle, that's possible. That he goes from being a creative genius who's very good in his lane to being saddled with a bureaucracy of uh, kind of the, the... the do-all guy and yeah maybe i mean the results speak for themselves yeah maybe i mean if i guess it would be the equivalent to just take darth vader fresh off revenge of the sith you know fresh out of losing his entire life and being confined to this metal suit to survive drop him on a planet full of tuscan raiders and see what happens like he's just going to wreak havoc and Lucas very much the same way it's not a deliberate thing I think people don't give Lucas enough credit and I mean I know I've said it in previous episodes to this day I love George Lucas I admire him more than virtually any filmmaker ever he's still an idol for me and I think he is maybe too creative and too smart for his own good and he really needs someone to point him in a way he is he is very much uh to use a sort of analogy his mind is like an open world map in a very linear Mm -hmm. video game you know it's with these movies you should have gone this way and instead he's trying to go everywhere the older I get, like I used to think that the 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 smartest people and the most talented people were the people in charge who were overseeing everything. But the older I get, the more I realize that it's really okay to be really good at the thing that you do 
really well. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like that's how a lot of entrepreneurs launch successful businesses. I don't mean to like turn this into a, you know, like a self-help podcast, but <laughs> it, it's like George Lucas is really good at creating characters and worlds and stories and, you know, these imaginative scenarios and it's okay to just be really good at that part of it. Mm-hmm. And he was really good at navigating the bureaucracy on the original Star Wars. He was really good at dealing with the studio and the stakeholders and, you know, the executives and kind of working through that. And he was confident in his vision. And it's okay for him to just been good at those things. And I think you're right that he tried to be the captain and the whole thing suffers because of it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly why you know I wanted to talk about this because it was one part, you know, A, to give credit where credit's due for Gary Kurtz because I feel like he's kind of an underdog when you're talking about sure. Star Wars. Like Forgotten, he's, I think, a lot. Yes, that, you know, to give him credit where credit's due, but also to kind of defend George Lucas because... I feel like many times it's, people are quick to blame him for for the result of the prequels and things like that, and and I'll admit for for a while there I was I also did, but but yeah, but I think it's important to keep it in perspective that you know like we've been saying he's just he's just this he's this creative force, and so you can't blame him for not having somebody in place to to wrangle him in and keep him in check and everything. Um, yeah, he, he not, was not to say that he didn't make his own mistakes along the way, but because um, well, get into could, could get into more things, but yeah, with with the prequels, I tend to think of it as Lucas was almost like an author without an editor. So oh, you yeah. look at That's someone like J.K. R- who owned the publishing yeah, house. Yes, you look at someone like J.K. Rowling the world that she built out of her imagination is incredible. The storyline that she came up with is even more incredible. You know, there are so many seeds planted in Sorcerer's Stone that you don't see until you get to the end of Deathly Hallows. Like, it was all so particular and so brilliantly put together. But she had editors. She sent Sorcerer's Stone off to however many different publishers before anybody went for it. And, oh, yeah. and you know, she does get 100% of the credit for those those books, that whole series, virtually all the time. And, I mean, she deserves most of it. But you also have to think about the fact that I'm sure the first drafts aren't the ones that got published. She, she. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you right now, as someone who worked as a newspaper writer, like without an editor, you're nothing. Exactly. Without someone looking over your work and and telling you what's good and what isn't, and helping you kind of cut out the crap. I mean, there is not a there is not a writer in the world who produces the thing that you finally consume. Exactly. There's there just isn't. Exactly, and so that's probably a lot of the problem with the prequels is the lack of that editor 
It was just yep. George Lucas's rampant creativity. You know, he was left to just do as he wanted, and that's what we got. Yep. Well, I will forever lament the opportunity to have a Gary Kurtz, George Lucas, Return of the Jedi. Or even just a George Lucas, Gary Kurtz prequel trilogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm. What could have been? And, and see, this is... This is where people go wrong. They blame George Lucas because, oh, Star Wars, George Lucas, it's his fault. When really, maybe we should be pointing the finger at somebody else for the prequels. Like Rick Berman. (laughs) I don't want to point (laughs) any fingers. I'm not saying go commit any hate crimes. but (laughs) Because the moral of the story is that a movie is not, not, not one sole person's responsibility. It's all about collaboration. That, yeah. or or either the uh, enrichment of or the lack of collaboration, which in exactly. the prequels you could say that it was a lack of proper collaboration, and in the originals it was you know the embodiment of collaboration that caused those results. And didn't Lucas and Spielberg work on the Indiana Jones movies yes. as well? Yes. So like there were two of those guys, and yeah. And so again, yeah, that's a great example where you didn't have Kurtz in, involved with Lucas on Indiana Jones, but you did have Spielberg there to act as, you know, a check and balance to George. Although George wasn't a director, he was just a writer, but still. just. But so I think I've heard Spielberg, like, not like we hang out, but, you know, in interviews, I think I've seen him say, like, there were times that he just said, George, no. Like, <laughs> like I, I appreciate where you're going, but no. Like, yeah. we can't do that in these films. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm looking at it right now, and even on, um, on Return of the Jedi, you had three writers, and then you get to, hmm. or, yeah, it says you've got three people listed for the screenplay, and then you get to Phantom Menace, and... It says written by George Lucas exclusively. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, I think it's that lack of collaboration that ultimately led to some people's disappointment. Now, Attack of the Clones did have uh, an additional writer, and Revenge of the Sith was right back to just George. Um, but, yeah, those, those original three were all collaborative ed- efforts. And so... Well, listen... Disney, the three of us are available. Pick up the phone. <laughs> give us a call. We are available and willing. I, this this could be my life's work. To c- conclude this, this bonus episode, I do want to ask for each of you your favorite Star Wars related memory. You know, all they, these movies matter so much to all three of us that we have spent the last few months working on this podcast series, coming home after long days at work, and talking about movies that we've seen countless times. Mm-hmm. Of all of this, what is your favorite memory involving these movies or the merchandise? Something related to that. Hmm. I mean, this is going to sound, you know, so so generic and everything but in all honesty i mean i still remember sitting in that theater special edition a new hope and you know the opening scroll 
fades away into the distance. The blockade runner comes out, and then bam, you just have that Star Destroyer just just passing overhead, just growing bigger and bigger, and like that was the moment. I know everybody says this, or at least a lot of people do, but like that was the moment that like I got sucked into the black hole and I have not escaped since. Like that did me in and there's no going back. Oh, that's uh that's a a very tough question. Um It's it's hard to to totally nail it down because I I really have a couple one of them doesn't really count though because it's not a distinct moment. So if I had to say a distinct moment, I would say it was right after I turned 12 years old. You know, the prequels all came out in late May, right around Labor Day weekend. Um, and right after my 12th birthday, Attack of the Clones was in theaters. And my dad and I, uh, for my birthday, my dad took me to the theater off North Point Boulevard in Hickson. And it was a, there was a vicious thunderstorm outside. I mean, like a, like full blown, almost like pre tornado thunderstorm. But we drove down, it's about 35 minute drive. And my dad took me to the theater. And uh, we were like two of maybe 10 people in the theater because like the storm was so bad. Um, it was like just me and him. And we went and we we watched Attack of the Clones, and like that theater doesn't even exist anymore. But it was like one of the, it was an older theater with those old terrible like red fold down seats, and like it had two aisles, uh, down you know the left and the right, and each aisle had the those like, you know when you get on an airplane those little light strips on the on the side of the aisle way it had those on the side, mm-hmm. and uh, like my just. Like me and my dad watching Star Wars at the theater for my twelfth birthday was just like it's, it's just one of those things I'll like always cherish because I'm I'm not sure there's another time that the two of us ever just went by ourselves to see a movie like I think that's the only time that me and him you know without my sister and my mom that it was just like a like a dad and son thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's probably my favorite Star Wars which is interesting memory. because as Lucas has said that uh, since giving the rights over to Disney that he intended these movies to be about fathers and sons so that's that's really interesting huh. yeah. you know I've I've talked about you know like I said my earliest memories being seeing watching Star Wars some of them um, so I don't really have that moment of seeing A New Hope the first time and that opening thing because it's been with me so long that I don't even remember it anymore. Um, the one that stands out uh, was three years ago in December of 2015, the night that The Force Awakens came out. Hmm. Earlier that day, I'd posted something on Facebook, you know, some sappy post of the movie poster and, and everything. And, you know, by this point, you know, the Disney acquisition had been announced two years before. And as soon as it w- had announced people that I hadn't talked to in years, you know, this was after I graduated high school. So uh, people that from high school that I hadn't talked to in so long were like message me on messaging me on Facebook and whatever. What do you think about it? And it was partially like yeah more star wars movies but it was also you know i was very nervous like the first time Mm -hmm. i see a 
cartoon of Goofy holding a lightsaber, I'm rioting. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I I was really nervous about what they were going to do. And then they put out those first trailers. And I remember the night the first trailer came out, we were in the Sprint store and buying cell phones. And I was in a huge hurry to get home. So I was like, the Star Wars trailer's coming out. It's coming out. It's coming out. And I watched it in the living room with my parents the second we got home. And my dad laughed at me because I cried. Um, but I remember sitting down in that theater that night. And it was already jam-packed full of people. And we didn't have very good seats. But I didn't even care. And I remember the movie starting. And we were with Hannah, um, my girlfriend, and her oldest sister, her two kids, uh, one of my friends back home that feels the same way about it as I do, um, and his brother. And Hannah grabbed my hand when the movie started, was about to start. And <laughs> I'm tearing up now thinking about it. Like, it was weird to not have that 20th Century Fox drum roll or anything, but then the Lucasfilm logo mm-hmm. popped up and it was like, okay, here we go. This is different, but here we go. And then a long time ago, in a, a galaxy far, far away. And then it fades out and the song starts and the, t- the words are there. And it's like, holy sh- I've waited <laughs> 10 years for something that wasn't going to happen. And then it was, and then it wasn't. And I look over, and her whole family's just staring at me, and dude, like, tears are just going. It's like, I can't believe this is happening. I don't care if this is good or bad. Like, there is more Star Wars. This is all I have wanted for 10 years. And then the movie ended, and it was like, I don't know how I feel about this. And then I saw it again the next morning at 9 o'clock, and it was like, this is everything that I hoped it would be. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well and then and there was that time we went to lucasfilm that is a totally different embarrassing story <laughs> standing in the lobby of lucasfilm just bawling my eyes out because i'm standing in the lobby of the building where everything that i love was created that's that's another good one it's funny because i it makes me think of i haven't thought about a lot of this in a long time but i remember one time I was probably nine or ten. Just you know, I I owned the original trilogy on VHS. I had a VHS box set that I bought at Walmart with like you know <laughs> birthday money or allowance savings or something. I don't remember. Um, but I remember I was <clears throat> I'm pretty certain it was the Super Bowl. I think it was the night of the Super Bowl, and so my dad was we at one point in my in my mom and dad's house like we had an an upstairs living room and then like a downstairs den area type thing so like my mom and my sister were downstairs my dad was upstairs watching the super bowl and i was like maybe off in my room watching star wars <laughs> and i remember i think it was the first time that i had ever watched return of the jedi i had just got the box set and i was watching through all of them and I was watching Return of the Jedi, and I was a kid. Like I said, I was nine or ten, and it gets to the like Vader, rather than see his son killed, like picks up the Emperor and throws him down the elevator shaft, and then like you know it, something else happens, and then we see Luke trying to get him onto the ship, and Vader's like like no, like take my mask off so I can see you. Like I I want to see you. And so, like, Luke peels the mask off, and then Anakin, you know, is 
talks about how proud he is of him and you know tell your sister i love her and like and it was like this i remember I, I, and i was a kid but i remember being like oh like in the words of 2018 like it hit me in the feels <laughs> like it it was it hit me right dead center in the feels and i remember like finishing the movie turning my tv off like normally i would just sit in my room and play with my toys for hours you know but i i finished the movie i turned the tv off and i went at that point in my life i had no interest in football but i went and sat with my dad on the couch because like it was like such an eye-opening thing to me like you know luke doesn't get to do this with his dad Mm -hmm. because his dad is was in murder and now he's dead, <laughs> you know, but it was like, I remember it, it hit me in my little nine year old feelings so hard that I went and sat with my dad and like watched the football game and ate popcorn with him because it was like, to your point, it was, it was a story of fathers and sons and it was like an eye opening thing of how, like how lucky I am to have my dad. I need to go spend time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, before like he dies on a ship ramp right in front of me, you know, um, cause that's so, so prevalent in our day and age. Right. <laughs> and then I have to burn his body on a stack of wood in the forest. Like a Viking. Um, but I think that's what movies are about, man. Like that's what movies are about. That's what art is about. Um, and we are all three like creative artistic people and, I'll forever argue that that's that's the value of art like that's the value of Star Wars that's the value of these films I don't care if people think they're silly I don't care if people think you know they're dumb or unrealistic like I it made me acutely aware as a kid that like there are these these greater things in life Mm -hmm. to be appreciated exactly I think we things that are important to us it's we should stop every now and then and ask ourselves why are these things important to us and uh so this has been fun this has been a really fun because mm-hmm. in, in essence do. that's kind of what we've been doing through this series is really hitting home on what is important to us about this series so it's kind of fitting that we reflect back on that here at the end well and like we said a couple sure. of weeks ago i like it wouldn't someone's i heard someone say like i think our mutual friend will ask us like how many people would have to listen to this for us to consider this a success. And I said like, nobody, I would consider it a success because we did it and because exactly. it happened. And, and because I, we have, you know, we've recorded our own thoughts and feelings about these movies. And, uh, and I'm glad we did that. And I'm glad we have that now. It, we, it's forever. It's documented. So, if you listen to this and you're not one of us three, thank you. And we love you and we appreciate you. <laughs> thank but you I, so you know, much. we did this, we did this for us. And I hope if you're listening that that comes through, that this is truly a passion project in, in a, in a moment in time when pod, like everybody and their brother, anyone with a computer is doing a podcast right now. Um, we didn't do this to monetize. We didn't, you know, we didn't, do this trying to create something that would just blow up and transcend only us we did this because it's you know we feel strongly about it and if we're the only people who ever listen to it then that's okay 
But at the same time, we aren't. But at the same time, we do have other passions, other interests. So therefore, this will hopefully not be the last of our slushy stop episodes. That we have ideas for other series that we can pick up and discuss. And yeah, we've all got mutual interests in uh, Harry Potter and Christopher Nolan, Indiana Jones. So Harry Potter, Harry Potter, the boy who lived come to die so we'll we'll get there don't get me started <laughs> stay tuned we have to do a lord of the rings we have to do a lord of the rings series let's do it i'm down i i'm going way down the balrog hole on that one <laughs> <laughs> all right well it's been fun gentlemen it's been good chatting and you know once again thank you all for listening we we do really appreciate it and we'll See you ne- for whatever's next. So, Wait this is see. Nathan. May the force be with you. Peace. Peace.